Welcome to Awakening Divine Wildness, hosted by inspirational speaker and best-selling author, Mal Duane. Mal invites you to embrace your divine wildness with powerful conversations with visionary women. Listen in and learn how to move from pain and heartache to forgiveness and freedom so you can live the life you deserve. I am so excited about today's guest because it is a topic that I think needs so much discussion because of everything that's going on in the world, how kids are treating one another. There is such a lack of kindness on this planet. And this woman is the expert on kindness. So today I'm honored to have Tara Kusino, who is a PhD, a clinical psychologist, a researcher. Her expertise spans child and adolescent health, women's health, mind-body medicine, and the use of innovative technologies to promote positive coping and well-being. Tara is a teacher and a practitioner of mindfulness meditation and self-compassion. She's the author of the best-selling book, The Kindness Cure, How the Science of Compassion Can Heal Your Heart and Your World. She's been quoted in Thrive Global, Mind Body Green, Good Housekeeping, Family Circle, Brides Magazine, Seventeen, and her own blog. She lives in the Boston area in Massachusetts, and her website is taracusano.com. Hello, lady. I am so happy to have you on today. Happy to be here, Mel. Thanks. You know, this is, for me, one of the core values in my life is kindness. And so when I saw your book and, and the beautiful work that you've done around this topic, I had to reach out to you. But I know that a lot of things happened that inspired you to look deeply at this topic and then write the book. So let's start with why you wrote about kindness. Yeah, there's probably a long backstory, but the shorter version is the one that's sort of more um, closer to this time period, let us say, is um, two daughters. And um, a few years ago, my older daughter was approaching senior year of high school. And um, on the eve of the first day of school, the kids were hanging out at, you know, sort of the local hot spot. And, um, you know, probably where they weren't supposed to be, but hey, it was a celebratory day. And, um, and she was beaten up by another girl. And a girl that I knew, a girl who had slept over our house and watched Harry Potter movies when they were 10 years old. And it was so shocking to me. Now, I'm not shocked by girl-on-girl violence because my private practice has been working with girls and women and mothers and daughters and that sort of thing. But I was surprised that it just happened to my kid. And, um, and so the tiger mom in me kind of came out, but I called on all of my training and compassion and mindfulness to kind of just take a pause and, you know, first ask her if she was okay. And then really think about why did this happen? And is this how people are coping today? Not just kids, but, you know, they learn it from other places in our culture. So I asked myself, what happened to kindness? And is there anything new about kindness that we might not know? Um, you know, in our culture, like we take kindness for granted in a lot of ways. So I put on my research cap um, because that's sort of where I tend to go when I'm trying to deal with difficult things. And I started researching 
the science of compassion. And that's really what sort of birthed the book. I love your description of kindness, that it's love in action. I mean, I think that is so beautiful. So how do we, how do we get people to become more conscious of being kind and specifically children, because children are awful to one another now? Well, you know, I think that it's actually a paradox because children are also the most kind human beings. They're closer to sort of their core souls and how they were brought into this world. I mean, all all kids have this huge capacity to have an open heart and kindness. I think really what happens is, is that it gets sort of um, uh, encultured away, if that's even a word, over time. And so one of the things that I really am a believer in is that we need to teach and practice empathy every day, every year, throughout the lifespan. We sort of relegate it to kindergarten, first grade, and do all these wonderful kindness campaigns, and then it stops. It literally, they, they, they stop. You know, there'll be community initiatives, and certainly there are a lot of, actually there are a lot of, ton of kindness initiatives, but it really needs to um, kind of get into your bones. And so, you know, one of my mottos is kindness is not random. Kindness is intentional. And to your point about a core value, we have to actually grow the neural networks in our minds, like, you know, kind of really ignite positive neuroplasticity because our brains are constantly changing and malleable, but for the good. And we do that by immersing ourselves um, in practices of kindness, uh, kind speech, right? Um, and kind parenting and kind co-working. <laughs> you know, we need to kind of practice it all around. We really do need to immerse ourselves. And when we don't, it's very easy to see what the repercussions are. All you got to do is turn on the news. One of the elements that I find very disturbing is how children use social media to classify, to attack, to... Um, you know, be villains, basically, to other children. And the ramifications of these social media attacks can end up with suicides, um, you know, depression, children having to move, go to other schools. So how can we educate children to, to be kind, to, to be deliberate, about their behavior in a kind way to their, their fellow students and friends? Well, first I'd, I'd like to point out that we need the adults in our culture to use social media in a kind way, yeah. right? That's the first thing. The second point I wanna make is that technology and social media inherently is neutral. It's not good or bad, it's how it's being used. So social media actually can incite wonderful campaigns and raise money and change behaviors in positive ways like you know the ALS you know the water um, dumping the bucket campaign I mean there's so many things that social media can do for the good but it's true that social media can also be leveraged as a tool um, that basically is mirroring what kids used to do in the schoolyard anyway it's just now their playground and I think that one of the challenges right now is that I feel like we're sort of at a tipping point and the tipping point is we can use media for the good or we can use it for the bad. And 
And I'm a little bit hesitant to say what direction we're going in right now because it doesn't seem all that great. Um, so we really actually have to role model this for our children and, um, and educate them. And, and I do think that schools are trying to do a pretty good um, you know, awareness building campaign around the right use and safe use of social media. And God knows I work with a lot of parents and it's their biggest concern. On the other hand, um, you know, I think that we need children to engage in activities of empathy in a way that they're really experiencing the impact of that change. So volunteering for veterans, working at a soup kitchen, um, so that they can actually see the potential result and be changed by it, right? We want to be transformed by kindness. That's why I say it's not random. And this needs to be developmentally appropriate across the lifespan. So with younger children, right, saying thank you and, you know, writing notes and, and picking up trash, you know, at your schoolyard. That's one level, right? Then you get to middle schoolers. And, um, you know, my daughters actually did a great program in Boston um, called City Reach, where they slept on a church floor overnight with homeless people so that they could actually feel what that was like and have, and understand the difference. And then talk to these people and realize they're not drug addicts. They're people who felt fall on hard times. So, so part of it is, really making the conscious effort to exposing our children to these sorts of things. I love your concept of having children volunteer and you even, you know, state that if you can get kids involved in service work, uh, it can minimize the potential of addiction and substance abuse in them. Let's go into this a little deeper. How do we, get kids to do this. I mean, because today children have iPhones, they have iPads. There's this, I say a lot of kids with this attitude of entitlement that I never saw before. And I, and children have access to, to so much money and so many things that you say, well, I want you to go and do something for free. I want you to volunteer. They're going to be like, what? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I'm hesitant to kind of blame kids today because they grow up in environments in their families and in their community. And, and I think you and I probably both live in either middle class or affluent, you know, communities where there are many resources. But we also actually live um, in a city that's almost one of the most segregated in the United States, you know, um, which is surprising about Boston, but it is. And so we need to kind of, the change has to happen really on the adult level first. You know, we can't expect kids to do things if they don't see the role models and the leaders in their communities doing it with them. So, um, you know, I think we can't just say, hey, hey, go and do this because it's a nice thing to do without showing that it's part of a core value from the get-go. Um, so, I, I actually, maybe this is why my parenting book proposal languished for so long because I got so frustrated with parents. <laughs> Well, I think you know, you're absolutely spot on. It everything does revert back to the parents because they're the ones that are conditioning and molding these children. Yeah, it's the community of adults, you know. So that's that's the parents, it's the teachers, it's churches, synagogues, and so on. And um, and you know, when like parents come up, I'll do a talk on the teen brain, and you know, because there's so much to say about substance use or whatever risky behavior, and then they're all asking about the iPhones or the cell phones, and I'm like, well, who bought it for them? Love. Yeah, 
<laughs> they don't have a whole lot to say. And I said, you know, and was there actually a, a, a decision about when the right age was? Did you gather with your, you know, the other parents of your children's friends and say, you know what, I think we should wait until eighth grade. You know, so I think, you know, I always joke that parents are being bullied by middle schoolers, you know, <laughs> which are their kids' friends, you know, like, mom, so-and-so has this, mom, you know, it's just like, sometimes I wish that parents and communities would get together and say, you know what, get the research on the adolescent brain, which is quite important, you know, this valuable the brain is, is that we start giving them stimulants which cell phones are stimulants, um, that's going to change the neural wiring. And it's also, you know, it increases kids' anxiety because then they have this sort of like, they get this happy dopamine fix. Um, I know that my girls have gone through this and actually in the set at one point, they're addicted. Um, and it's really hard as a parent. I have a lot of compassion for parents to be able to kind of set parameters around um, really just mindful use of technology, not overuse, but mindful use. I mean, we're not going to get rid of it. Um, but we have to realize that there's lots of different channels and ways to ignite kindness. You know, technology is one way, but really I think it comes from the heart of the home and the values that schools place on it. Um, and you know, certainly our, our media <laughs> and the bigger systems at large, um, that are tough sometimes. Now you're a mindfulness meditation teacher and... I'm a, a strong proponent of children meditating, but you don't see much of it in the schools around here. You do see a lot of it in New York now. Uh, Sting and his wife actually have financed uh, meditation programs in schools where really some tough neighborhoods where children can, might be a little bit more aggressive and you know uh, physically combative with one another. And they, the results have been outstanding. What are your thoughts on teaching children some practices to calm them down a little bit, maybe get them engaged in a little bit more mindful thinking, kind, you know, kindful behavior? It's a core life skill, and it should be taught in preschool and every year thereafter. It's it's so clear, and there's so there are actually quite a number of programs. I think Goldie Hawn was actually one of the first um, to really kind of bring mindfulness to schools. Um, they're the Baltimore Boys who have the Holistic Life Foundation, you know, the inner city of Baltimore who have brought it to schools. They brought, you know, the schools now have like a mindful moment um, every day. They start and they begin their day. And, um, and they're seeing really such reductions in um, acting out behavior and increases in school attendance. It's amazing what the power of a pause can do. So the research now is to really trickle in about the ability of mindfulness practices and self-compassion practices to actually change the neural networking in the brain. So instead of reacting and having sort of this amygdala emotional explosion in the brain, the practices of mindfulness, which is really learning how to calm and kind of connect to your breath um, or your feet, there's a number of grounding practices, actually has such beneficial um, 
uh, results, um, you know, in your physiology. Um, you know, it ignites the parasympathetic nervous system, which we call the calm and connect system. And the more kids are able to do this, they're better able to focus and to concentrate. They think before they speak, before they act, they're kinder. Um, you know, the University of Wisconsin-Madison has a kindness curriculum. It's now free. It's now in Spanish. People can download it. This is for preschool kindergartners. And I think that what we're going to see is that the science is proving ancient wisdom is what it's coming down to is love and kindness and the ability for self-awareness and self-monitoring. All of this matters and we can learn it at any time in our lives, but the earlier, the better. How do we get schools more involved or teachers more involved? And if the school does not want to um, create a program like that, what about parents teaching it at home and just getting children started on their own? Oh, absolutely. And here's actually where technology is a benefit there, um, you know, for parents to actually practice on their own. So, um, you know, I have a little meditation corner and I do a daily practice. It's not very long. It's about 15 minutes of meditation. And I cannot tell you how many times my kids have, you know, just opened the door, walked through, asked me a question, and I don't answer. And I feel like through the process of osmosis, they are seeing that it's my time, it's my sacred space, they can wait. Um, so I think children, not only do they see us do this, we become calm ourselves. And they might not be able to pinpoint it on the meditation, but a calmer parent is gonna result in a calmer child. There are so many apps out there, and I can't even list them all now, where you could actually, with smaller children, um, Mind Yeti, there's, you know, the Calm app, you know, Headspace, you know, some people like, I mean, there's just so many choices at this point. And, you know, you do it together. Um, you add it to bedtime reading, you add it to prayer. Um, bedtime, and, you know, after a story, let's, let's meditate together. Oh, I think that's a fabulous idea. There's wonderful books on actual meditation scripts for, for parents, um, bedtime meditations. And you can just go online. And, and I actually read them to my kids, you know, and it's like visualizing, you know, the dolphins in the ocean or, you know, the balloon floating in the sky. And so you can really tap the power of imagination with children to actually help them calm down. And of course, it's enormous benefit before kids start doing their five hours of homework a night. I know. Oh, I, I think that's, a, you know, that's a, a really powerful idea is for parents to take on this as a practice with their children morning and night, you know, and be responsible for introducing them to this and, and to, you know, to, to build a practice so by the time they're in high school and getting out, these kids are really, you know, trained in compassion and kindness and mindfulness. It's a, it's a game changer. I've been meditating for 30 years. It changed my life. Mm -hmm. When I first got into recovery, I just discovered meditation. And I, yes. tell you, I think that's why I have 30 years of recovery is because I got really calm and really mindful. Listen, mindfulness helps veterans with PTSD. It's part of trauma-informed practices, yoga. And really, when we can learn to calm our own physiology and realize that we have more control than we think that we do, it is a game changer. I completely agree with you. 
you know, some people think, oh, mindfulness is like woo-woo. Uh, not at all. This should be a stable in our educational programs now, starting early on, elementary school, start introducing children to this. I think the world will become a different place if we do. Yeah, and you know, and I'd like to add, because I always say, and we need it in the workplaces too. I mean, parents spend most of their time in workplaces and they are some of the most brutal environments to work in and cause so much stress. And so we really need to carry it throughout our lifespan. And in the places that we spend the most time is a really good place to adopt these practices. And I think that we are seeing it because the research is really bearing out the benefits that we're going to see in more places. And while right now we're in this phase of mindfulness and it's kind of like the elixir for anything and everything, um, I think that the sustainable benefits are proving themselves out and, uh, and we'll see it probably in the next 10 years, much more a part of uh, school life, sports, and hopefully the workplaces. You also talk about self-kindness and working with women the way I do and many of them in recovery. Um, I think that one of the biggest challenges women have is self-kindness. And is there practices? I mean, I know what they are, but I'd love to know what you think. Things that we can help women with to be more kind to themselves. We're, you know, our own dialogues, our own inner conversations are just, we're our worst critics. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I say to women, the things that we say to ourselves, nobody would ever dare say that to us. So I'm wondering what practices you like or suggestions to help women embrace self-kindness. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I do think that, um, you know, kindness in the world starts with kindness to ourselves. It's easier to care for other people. It's harder to care for ourselves. And so part of the practices with self-kindness, self-compassion is really learning to be a friend to oneself. So, you know, you probably say this, I say this, like, you know, if you tune into your inner dialogue and actually write down what it is that you are telling yourself, would you ever say that to your best friend? Would you ever say that to a person in need or who is suffering? No. And so really it's about changing the inner dialogue to being more tender, to being nurturing. And because this is so hard, because the inner critic serves a role. So as a psychologist, I want to let people know is that your inner critic was created as a way to protect you. And so it's really hard to kick it out the door because it served such an important role for so long. But what the inner critic needs is you to befriend it, is to become friends with your inner critic and say, I hear you. This is really important to me. So now you're screaming your head off, but you know what? I've got this one. You got to go take the back seat. You know, I know you're here. I know you care about me, but I'm going to do this in my own way. And so I think that when, when women can start to see that they can have a different relationship with their inner critic, it starts to quiet down. I've seen this so, so many times. It's so this is really, really the core of my teaching when I work girls and women, how to befriend the inner critic, notice it, befriend it, learn how to let it, um, you know, it let, let it quit its job. <laughs> it's not serving a purpose anymore, but it did at one point. And so, you know, that's one technique. The other technique that I really love is um, 
is find a picture of yourself when you were three or five or seven, when you were that small child, you know, in this world, you know, you might have had a loving home, you might have had a really chaotic home, but that child has a heart, you know, and so I actually, you can't see it now, I wish I could, you know, spin the computer around, I had this little picture of myself when I'm five holding our dog, Sasha, and it, and so it's like double love, you know, so I, I send love to myself, I send love to our childhood dog, and it really just, it, it does this upswell of positive feelings. This could be hard for some women at first, because they can't quite get there, but I'm like, keep the picture up there, and it might even be that you need the picture of yourself at 14 or 18 or 25, you know, because all of those parts of yourself went through a lot and they need your love now. So that's another trick with self-compassion and I find it to be a, a pretty good one. I love that. Uh, I think for me, when I realized that I had that other voice in my head that was so critical and so damning of, you know, anything I wanted to do or, or goals or whatever, telling me I wasn't good enough or couldn't, I realized there was that voice, but then there was a higher self in there as well. So I gave yes. that critical voice a name. I named her Louise. And when she's mouthing off and tearing me to shreds, I go, Louise, zip it up. I hear you. I've got this. I've got it. Just the way you said, I can handle this. We're good. I think when we identify it, that it is. Absolutely. I mean, I'm. Um, yeah, no, it's helpful to, you know, negative Nelly, Judge Judy. I mean, I, I do the naming thing, you know, and it is really kind of helpful, but sometimes there's more than one. So, some, you know, you know, there is sometimes, you know, depending on the circumstances, you know, so, um, you know, you get one coming up in the family, you know, or one at work. And so sometimes it's helpful because we have this little sort of chorus of voices, but uh, I totally agree with you. It's a great strategy. Tara, you have been wonderful. This is so informative. And I just want to let the listeners know that you have a fabulous little kindness quotient quiz on your website so people can see kind of where they're at uh, yes. in the kindness factor. And anything else you'd like to say to the audience today? You know, just the hardest thing is to remember to remember to love yourself. Yeah. You know, just remember. You know, when you forget, you just come back. It's okay. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, girl. You, this has really been wonderful. And I, I so appreciate you fitting me in because I know how busy you are. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. Bless you, girl. Thanks for listening to Awakening Divine Wildness. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend and leave some stars and a favorable review at iTunes. And be sure to visit MalDwayneCoach.com for your free Heal Your Heart, Reclaim Your Worth six-week video course.